How many times have I been recording an episode and I told myself, wait 30 minutes after you've just eaten or drunk something to record because otherwise you're going to have a bad time. Yeah. Well, guess who just ate some Taco Bell and then is now immediately recording an episode? This guy. It's our weird world. Our weird world. Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson, and this week, looking at three very mysterious uh, kind of murder events. Um, Not really serial killers, because they were just like isolated events, but um, yeah, just some strange killings. Uh, We're looking at the Velisca Axe murders, the Hinterkaifeck murders, and the story of the Halifax Slasher. So... Let's jump into it. Story time. On June 9th, 1912, uh, the Moore family, uh, which consisted of uh, the father, Josiah, who was 43, uh, Sarah, the mother, who was 39, and then their four kids, Herman, 11, Mary Catherine, 10, Arthur seven and Paul five, and they were going out to attend a children's day service at the local Presbyterian church in Villisca, Iowa and Villisca, very, very, very small town, uh, in the Southwestern corner, uh, just out in the middle of nowhere, just nothing but cornfields part of Iowa, which I get is mostly Iowa, but this is like extra corny, I guess. Um, After the service, the family of six, along with two members of the Stillinger family, Ina Mae and Lena, uh, who were both 12 years old, friends of Herman and Mary Catherine, uh, they were going to go spend the night with the Moors. And so the all eight left the church and went home. And that was the last time any of them were seen alive. Uh, The next day, the Moore's neighbor, Mary Peckham, uh, got a little concerned after no one had come out for their morning chores. And guys, it was already past 7 a.m. Like, like, man, rural, rural Iowa in the early 1900s, very different place than it is now. But like, but it's also like that's farm life. You know, you get started at like five, six in the morning, you know, doing whatever needs to be done on the farm and you know, you do that for any period of time consistently. And all of a sudden your neighbors neighbor, cause I mean, you're not, you don't live in like an actual like cul-de-sac or anything, but like your neighbor will notice. And Mary being the nosy little lady that she was, uh, went over, knocked on the door. Obviously no one answered. And so she tried to just let herself inside. Cause that's not like, I love how that, I love how that's just such an insane behavior now. Like, if I don't see my neighbors for two weeks, like whatever, dude, I just like they're dead probably, but I'm going to let someone else figure that out. I'm not going to go walk over to their house and try to go inside their house. Not going to do that. Um, so, but the door was locked. So she called Ross Moore, who was Josiah's brother. Um, but before doing that, uh, she went, (laughs) she went around back and let out the, the Moore's chickens. Like, just let them out of their cage, I guess, because that's what you do. Um, Free range chickens or whatever. I don't know. Farm stuff. Um, But Ross, uh, he had a copy of uh, the key to the house, so he let himself inside. 
Um, he walked into the parlor, didn't really see anything weird. And then he walked over to the guest bedroom where he found, uh, both of the Stillinger girls were very, very like extremely dead. Like not just like, Oh, they died in their sleep. No, they were extremely dead, very obviously dead. And you'll see why here in a second. Uh, he quickly ran back out, told Mary to call Velisca's peace officer, Hank Horton, uh, to come over and help him kind of figure out what was going on. Uh, Hank arrived a few minutes later, searched the house and came back out and found that basically everyone had been bludgeoned to death with Josiah's axe. Um, doctors quickly came in, they examined each body and concluded that the murders had taken place around 5 a.m. And um, investigators then found two cigarettes in the attic uh, and no one in the Moore's family smoked. They, they certainly weren't going up and sneaking up into the attic to smoke. So they kind of got this idea that the killer was waiting there until the family was all asleep. Uh, of course, though, because it was Josiah's axe, people logically thought that Josiah had snapped and had murdered everyone. But actually, it also, like, for starters, it didn't account for, like, the fact that Josiah was also bludgeoned to death with the axe like he wasn't going to do it himself um and the thing about it was that it appeared as though josiah and sarah were the first ones to uh be murdered even more josiah was just bludgeoned and beaten way more than anyone else in the house um and whoever murdered them also used the blade of the axe on Josiah and only Josiah everyone else got the blunt end and so that seemed pretty strange um <clears throat> investigators were kind of able to piece together a trail of events and so they ultimately surmised that like after Josiah and Sarah were killed uh the killer then went into the children's rooms uh and killed all of the children before then returning to the master bedroom to bludgeon the parents more. Uh, and then before they left, they then found the Stillinger sisters and killed them. Um, they obviously, they believe that everyone had been completely asleep when they were killed, perhaps with the exception of Lena Stillinger, who was found lying across the bed and had kind of a defensive wound on her arm. So like, that's gotta be horrifying. Like you're just in this house and you hear everyone get murdered by this person. Guy comes in, kills your sister, and then now you're wide awake and you're trying to fight this guy off. Not very well because she died, but you know, you get it. Um, no one had any idea who had committed these murders, but police uh, quickly came up with several suspects. All right. Uh, the first was this guy named Andy Sawyer, who was just kind of this transient who had showed up uh, to the Burlington Railroad at 6 a.m. on the morning of the murders and asked for a job. Um, when he showed up, he was wearing a brown suit. His shoes were strangely covered in mud and his pants were wet all the way up to his knees. Um, even stranger, Sawyer was intensely fascinated by these murders and he often was just asking around, he asked police, he asked people around town if they had found the killer yet. Uh, Thomas Dyer, who gave Sawyer the job at the railroad, also kind of noted that like um, Sawyer was always sleeping with an axe, which is, again, very strange behavior, very, very odd 
given the context of, of all these murders. Um, Dyer's son claimed that Sawyer even showed him in great detail how the killer would have escaped the Moore's home without ever being seen, which I don't know how you know that. Um, however, it was determined that Sawyer had been actually been arrested in Osceola, Iowa, which was 70 miles east of Villisca on the night of the murders. And basically he had been put on a train by the local sheriff to get him out of town, which made it highly improbable that he would have even been in Villisca that night because that rail line, I don't think went through Villisca. Um, you know, it was going from Osceola to Burlington and it's just, you know, the way the direction is, it's just not, not that. Um, another suspect was Frank Fernando Jones, who was an Iowa state Senator who had employed, uh, Josiah Moore before he left to start his own business that ultimately became more successful, uh, and ended up taking business away from Jones. So like he hires Josiah, Josiah works for this guy for a little bit of time. Then Josiah leaves, starts a business that then becomes more successful than Jones's business. And so, um, some people believe that Jones had hired a guy named William Blackie Mansfield to murder the family, uh, because Mansfield was actually the prime suspect in a series of other axe murders in Paola, Kansas, that had occurred four days before the Villisca murders. Uh, even more, Mansfield had already been known to have killed his wife, his infant child, and his in-laws with an axe two years later uh, in Illinois. So he commits these axe murders in Kansas. Uh, four days later, the Villisca murders occur, uh, and then... Two years later, he ends up killing his family. Uh, even more, Mansfield was ultimately connected to axe murders in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Ellsworth, Kansas, and uh, the famous uh, New Orleans axe murders. So uh, if, you're, if you guys aren't aware, there's a famous story uh, of an axe murder in New Orleans around this time. I think it was a little bit later on. But um, around this time where, yeah, this guy just ran around town at night kind of bludgeoning people to death with an axe. And it got so notorious that he would write into the local papers and basically like like one of his final threats was just like any house that's not playing jazz is going to get attacked. And so like the, the way the story goes is just like every house that night was playing jazz music. And like the America, there's a season of American horror story that was kind of centered around this story. Um, but yeah, it, it was all connected around, uh, uh, William Mansfield. Um, James Wilkerson, uh, a detective with the Burns detective agency of Kansas city claimed that he could prove that Mansfield was present in each of the cities on the night of these murders and that each murder was carried out in the same way. Um, although Mansfield was arrested and brought to Kansas to face trial for the Ellsworth ax murders, uh, payroll records, uh, submitted during the, that trial indicated that he was actually in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. And due to that and just an overall general lack of evidence, Mansfield was allowed to go free and even sued Wilkerson for the entire ordeal. Uh, and Mansfield actually ended up winning the suit and was awarded a little over $2,200. Um, here's the thing, though. All right. So it wasn't those guys. All right. But we have the answer for sure. Totally. 100%. Uh, in 2017, Baseball historian Bill James claimed that he had figured it all out, right? He believed that a man named Paul Mueller, uh, a German immigrant, had gone around the country following an 1897 murder 
of a West Brookfield, Massachusetts family who had originally employed him as a farmhand. Um, James connected Mueller to the same axe murders that Mansfield was connected with and, and a bunch more. Um, in all, all right, this guy, Bill James, believes that Mueller's decade-long pr- uh, crime spree across the country resulted in 59 deaths in at least 14 different um, murder events. All right, uh, Police, however, have not looked into this at all because Paul Mueller, not a real person. No record of anybody named Paul Mueller um, who worked in Massachusetts, who was living anywhere else at any remotely similar time. Um, so I don't know who knows. The only person actually who was ever tried for the Velisca ax murders was a guy named George Kelly, uh, who was a traveling minister who had been accused of peeping and asking young girls to pose nude for him. Um, and he was actually the preacher at the church. The Moors attended on the night of the murders and Kelly had actually left town around the time the murders were committed. Um, and, on, and Kelly actually confessed to the murders, but due to a diagnosed mental illness, no one actually believed him, and he was ultimately acquitted after two trials, which, like, why are you inviting, oh, actually, no, that's a stupid question. Of course you're going to invite a mentally ill person to, you know, preach at a church because, eh, you know, you wouldn't give them a chance. So, whatever. Um, to this day, though, no one knows who committed the Velisca Axe murders, um, but the town of Velisca has capitalized on this story. They are happy to show you the house that you can go inside, take tours. You can see how everyone was killed. Um, it is basically the main <laughs> sort of income generator for the town outside of like corn and stuff. So, um, yeah, no one really knows uh, who ended up doing that. And all of the all of the credible leads, you know, ended up getting acquitted or, or whatever. Uh, next, uh, we're going to the Hinterkaifeck murders. And Hinterkaifeck uh, was a farmstead, farm small farm built in 1863 near the village of Groburn, uh, roughly 40 miles north of Munich, Germany. Um, the farm was occupied by the Gruber family, uh, which included uh, these names here. Uh, Kajelia, who was 72, Andreas, who was 63, Victoria, 35, uh, another Kajelia, um, who was age seven, who was Victoria's daughter, and then another uh, a son, a two-year-old son named Joseph. Um, but in September of 1921, uh, the Gruber's maid abruptly quit, claiming that she was hearing strange sounds in the attic and that the house was haunted. Um, in March of 1922, Andreas found a newspaper from Munich on the property, which was strange considering like no one in the immediate area subscribed to that particular newspaper. Um, he also discovered tracks in the snow that led from the forest behind the farm up to a broken door lock on the farm's machine room, but there were no tracks leading away from that, that machine room. It was just one way, just come right out of the woods into the machine room and then nothing leading out. Um, on March 31st, 1922, everyone except two-year-old Joseph was lured out to the barn where they were murdered one at a time with a pickaxe. Um, the killer then walked into the house, found Joseph and the family's new maid, Maria, and killed them both with, with the same pickaxe. Um, 
unlike Iowa, five full days passed before someone realized that something wasn't right. Um, on April 4th, Albert Hoffner, who had gone to Hinterkaifeck to make some repairs to the family's food chopper, uh, told the daughters of the village guide, Lauren Schlittenbauer, about how like th- things felt pretty weird over at Hinterkaifeck. Like he had gone and made these repairs. Um, you know, he'd been on the property for like five hours and, and just didn't see anyone. Like no one came to greet him. No one talked to him. And that was really strange. Um, Schlittenbauer then sent his son and his stepson over to Hinterkaifeck to try to make contact so to see what was going on. Um, when the boys failed to find anyone, Schlittenbauer himself went over and found the four bodies in the barn before then finding the other two bodies inside. Uh, investigators were called in from Munich and they had a hard time analyzing the situation properly because by the time they got there, several people had come in and tampered with the crime scene. Um, even going so far as to cook entire meals in the Gruber's kitchen, like what's going on in Germany where you have this gruesome murder scene and you just have like gawkers and onlookers, onlookers coming in and be like, Oh yes, I'm very hungry. There's a very full kitchen right here. Is this, I will go make a meal for myself. Like, no, why are you doing that? Um, anyway, uh, the local physician, Johann Baptiste Amuller, uh, performed autopsies on the bodies and determined that the, uh, younger Kajelia had initially survived the blows to his head with the pickaxe. And it actually pulled out several tufts of, uh, her own hair in agony, which, that's brutal. Like to be in so much pain that you're pulling out your own hair. And I don't know. I don't know what you're, I don't know why you're doing that. Uh, rather than like, I don't know, crawling to get help, but whatever. I don't know, man. Germans. Um, investigators quickly realized also that whoever had committed the murders had actually stayed on the property for a couple of days afterwards. Like the cattle had been fed, large amounts of bread and meat were missing from the pantries. Uh, neighbors even reported seeing smoke from the chimney during the days following the murder. So like, that's a ballsy move to like go onto this family's farm, murder the entire family, and then just like decide to keep the farm going. Like, keep feeding the cattle, you know, let the chickens out or whatever if they're doing that, you know, like just making their own meals and enjoying a nice fire. Like, that takes that takes some real balls to do that. Um, they also couldn't understand, like investors really couldn't understand, like what was what drew the Grubers out to the barn to begin with. Um, the bodies, when they found them, were arranged side by side in the barn uh, as evidenced like, like to show that like they were tampered with after they were dead, you know, like the guy murdered them and then arranged the bodies like side by side. Um, investigators kind of assumed that the killer was on the premises for some time during the murders, but the only evidence they initially found was a small area of shifted roof tiles and indentations in the hay of the barn, like out where they got murdered. Um, however, and this is, this was, this was a nice little, wrinkle to the story uh this spot was actually later determined to be a hiding spot where andreas and victoria were having incestuous relations with each other because of course so like i don't know if i i don't know if i like kind of cleared that up but like basically um kajelia and andreas so that was like the the 
patriarch matriarch because Gila was the the grandmother at this point uh andreas was the father uh victoria was their daughter all right so victoria getting it on in the barn with her dad cool um police initially wondered if victoria's uh, husband carl gabriel had committed the murders uh as revenge for victoria birthing joseph with her own father nice um (laughs) which like and honestly like that seems pretty plausible totally understandable but carl had actually been killed in arras france during world war one in 1914 uh so you know this this happened eight years later so pretty sure it wasn't him um his body however was like never recovered so that kind of led some people to speculate that he actually hadn't died but it just defected to russia um because he had told a lot of people that he had a desire to just go to russia one day so obviously guys obviously uh he faked his own death to defect to Russia, to then come back to Germany, to murder his entire family because his wife was getting it on with his father-in-law. Makes perfect sense. Um, and, and like police, like regardless of what the truth was, like police had no possible way of proving whether or not Gabriel was or was not involved because there was no actual recovery of his body during World War One. It was all, you know, just what people were saying. Um, Lauren Schlittenbauer, the, the village guide, he was also suspected mainly because the initials LS were written on Joseph's birth certificate, um, which I don't know, maybe, um, police were also curious as to why or how he had a key to the Hinterkaifeck house and why he just walked in by himself on the day the bodies were discovered. Um, some people said that Schlittenbauer had told them he was looking for his son's um, to go and try and track them down. And whether or not that was true, he did disturb the crime scene inside, which made it really difficult for investigators to figure out what was going on. Um, many people, and because of that, like many people in Groburn believed that Schlittenbauer was the murderer. Um, mostly because he kept saying a lot of weird things to make people think he was like, he would make comments about how the ground was too frozen to bury bodies on the night of the murders. Um, how, you know, I, you know, just weird stuff like that. Um, up until his death in 1941, Schlittenbauer actually sued several people for slander and won several claims against people who had called him the murderer of Hinterkaifeck. So, um, you know, I don't, I, whatever. Um, however, we know who did it. All right. Paul Mueller back, you know, um, Bill James was Bill James was like, Hey guys, it was, it was Paul Mueller. I know this. All right. How do you know this bill? Well, uh, because the crimes at Hinterkaifeck and Velisco were very similar, uh, namely that they both used an ax, you know, uh, Bill James actually like he truly did suspect that Mueller had done this because he was a German immigrant, like I mentioned before. Um, and he had gone back to Germany after his killing spree in the United States to keep killing people. And again, police have not bothered to investigate this at all because it's completely stupid. Right. Um, without any real idea for a motive, Police kind of just began rounding up people who might remotely be considered a suspect. Uh, Over a hundred people were questioned about the murder, but the case was never solved and the files were just closed in 1955 and no one knows who 
actually did it. Um, our final story here is of the Halifax slasher when on November 16th, 1938, Mary Gledhill and Gertrude Watts claimed that a man with bright buckles on his shoes attacked them with a mallet. Uh, five days later, Mary Sutcliffe was attacked. And by the time Hilda Lodge was attacked on November 25th, there had been so many other reports of attacks, uh, in uh england that scotland yard and various uh vigilante gangs were roaming the streets of halifax looking for the attacker so it's halifax england um and you know someone just out attacking a lot of women no one knows who's doing it scotland yard's getting involved uh clifford edwards who joined one of the gangs uh, vigilante gangs and responded to Hilda's attack was actually accused of being the Halifax slasher, which was this name that was given to the mysterious attacker. Um, Edwards was quickly cornered by the mob who then began chanting for his death. Uh, police quickly swooped in to escort him home before anything else happened. But like, and he wasn't the guy he was actually part of the vigilante gang looking up and then someone was just like, Hey, maybe it's this guy. And then everybody's like, sure. Why not kill him? Um, by now, the people of Halifax were scared, completely scared, and wondered, uh, actually, if James Leonard, who had been convicted of several slasher attacks in 1927, had returned to do some more slashing. Uh, however, none of the victims claimed that their attacker had a big nose, which was Leonard's most easily identifiable characteristic, so he was thrown out. Uh, over the next week, several other people reported attacks in Halifax, as well as the nearby towns of Manchester and Bradford. On November 29th, Percy Waddington, who had reported an attack earlier that day, just kind of admitted that he had attacked himself. And Percy's admission of that brought others forward who had claimed attacks to then admit the same thing. Um, so now... It's like, well, how many people really were getting attacked versus people just faking it for attention, which tends to happen a lot in England. Um, Scotland Yard immediately then closed the investigation and charged five people with public mischief, sending four of them to prison, one of which was Paul Mueller, who was finally caught and he confessed to all the axe murders. And it was all true. And Bill James became uh, just a hero for a very short amount of time. Like, oh my God, Bill. I know that you are super into baseball. How did you know about this Paul Mueller guy? And Bill was just like, I just had a hunch, you know, and, and all of the evidence was there. Like he was in Boston and I knew him because I knew this family. And then I knew that when they died, I knew Paul was the one that did it. And then because I knew he liked axes, he chopped all their firewood. And then I started seeing all of this happen. He carried an ax everywhere he went, you guys. And I, I just all over Villisca, Kansas city, New Orleans, uh, the other places, Colorado Springs that I mentioned. And he just went on this rampage and I knew he was a German immigrant. And I knew that eventually he would get tired and he would feel like the police in America were coming to get on, you know, coming to get him. So he would just go back to Germany. That's his homeland. And then he killed those people. He just walked right out of the woods and Hinterkaifeck murdered all those people with the ax. And then because he just, he couldn't help himself. He had to get on a boat and a train and whatever they had in the 1930s and go to England and Halifax. And he started swiping at people with his ax. And some people were like, oh no, we gotta get, whatever. And Paul was just like, finally, his conscience finally got to him because deep down, Paul Mueller was a good guy. And finally, his conscience got to him and he finally confessed. And he's like, yes, I'm the Halifax slasher. And I'm also the New Orleans axe man. And I'm also the Velisca axe murder. And I'm also the Hinterkaifeck murder. 
And that's how, no, no, none of that's true. Paul Mueller was actually not connected to this at all. I just, I thought it was funny um, that he would be. Because, like, it kind of lines up. I mean, it's 1938. It's not that much farther removed from Velisca and Henry Kaifek, but whatever. All right, we're done with the stories today. There you go. A little true crime, a little mystery. I know for people who enjoy a lot of closure in their stories that there wasn't a lot here. But uh, I don't know, man. Take the Paul. It was Paul Mueller. All right. Just go ahead and run with that. It was this international super killer who never got caught. Of course. No. Uh, let's, you know what? Let's wrap it up and see what we learned today. What did we learn? Number one, the town of Villisca, Iowa is super, super into the gruesome murder of an entire family uh, that happened one night in, in the early 1900s. You can go there, tour the house. You know, I don't, you would have to go way out of your way to go visit this place. But hey, look, if you're on a road trip through the Midwest, you're looking for stuff to do, check out the Villisca Axe Murder House, right? Uh, number two, uh, the Halifax Slasher may have just been a bunch of people faking it for attention. Seems reasonable. Uh, and number three, Paul Mueller, not a real person. All right. Never, no exist, no record of his existence. All right. I'm sure there have been a bunch of Paul Mueller's in the past, but not one who lived in Massachusetts and then traveled around the country, axe murdering a bunch of people. It's complete nonsense. Next week on Our Weird World, we are going to Texas. I uh, got uh, several uh, kind of paranormal tales from Texas, uh, mostly in the mid to late 1800s. What was going on in Texas during this time? Who knows? We're going to find out. Uh, probably just a bunch of urban legends, really. But uh, yeah, uh, five stories, five, one, two, three, four. Yeah, five stories from Texas. Uh, we're going to look at the stories of the Converse werewolf, the donkey lady, the hairy man, the servant girl, annihilator. Maybe it's another Paul Mueller. Um, and then also um, a, a strange event that happened in the town of Aurora, Texas. Um, all of that happened in the 1800s. So uh, we will look at those stories next week. And that's going to do it. Thank you all for listening. Keep telling all your friends and keep it weird. Keep it weird.